0: Charlie Forn is the author of eight previous books, including the novels Carol Farewell and House on Fire and the award-winning work The Last House of Ulster and documentaries for CBC Radio. Born and raised in Toronto, he holds degrees from the University of Toronto and University College Dublin and has taught at universities in China, Hong Kong, and Canada. He is the author of uh, what has been dubbed the prize-winningest Book in Canadian uh, literary history, Mordecai, The Life and Times, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the Bibliophile again. Thank you. I'd just like to quote the, uh, the last paragraph of the book, the bibliographic uh, essays. Among the dozens of letters of condolence sent to Florence Richler and the family, the July 24th, 2001 letter from novelist Timothy Finley was especially thoughtful and poignant. He had the guts, Finley wrote of Mordecai Richler, in every aspect of his life, to do what a person forever regrets not doing himself. He was a champion of the doing of things. For him, it was a basic truth. Talk is cheap. So here we are going to talk about that. What did he do that took guts?
1: I think just about everything he did took guts up to a point, starting from his rebellion against the way he was being raised, which, in, in contrast, many people who wish they had rebelled against the orthodoxies of their childhoods, uh, they wish that as adults. Uh, Richler actually did so as a child. Um, no interest whatsoever in Judaism. In other words, at the age of 12 and a half or 13, he was already staking out his own ground. He was... He displayed courage in many, many aspects of his professional life and his personal life. He could bookend them, in a sense, by talking about the what most Canadians identify, which is his battles with Quebec nationalism, specifically with the sign laws. Which, regardless of your views on the wisdom of his positions or the even your views on the how he went about it, for a sixty-something man to have, in a sense, become a the the a one-person opposition and to have fought so forcefully in and in, in such a, a brawling manner with an entire movement was very impressive and was certainly the uh, behavior of, of someone who was courageous. So that would be the one book. And the other one, though, which fascinated me was that way back in his childhood, he was rebelling and disputing and disagreeing with the orthodoxy of his upbringing inside that orthodox Jewish world. And he was doing so from, I don't know, age four or five onwards. And someone explained to me what was an extraordinary aspect of Richler's bar mitzvah. Typically, Jewish kids, uh, boys are obliged to memorize one part of it only. But you're encouraged, if you are, want to show your, your ambition as a young, a young Jew, t- to memorize the whole thing in Hebrew. Do all the parts. And Richler did all the parts. Normally, something only aspiring young, know, young rabbis or rabbinically minded kids would do. And he did them, and he executed, and he made everyone very proud and surprised. Virtually at the same time as saying he had no interest in Judaism.
0: Yeah, it's almost like I can do that. I'm good enough to do that, right. but I choose not to.
1: I choose not to, and that's almost the pattern. So he would say, "I could," when he's 19 years old, and he decides he's going to go to London. He could stay in Canada, but he isn't going to stay. He's going to go test himself again in these larger, in this larger metropolis. And that is definitely something that is throughout his life. Courage, and you can substitute other words for courage if you don't like that word. You can talk about stubbornness. You can talk about uh, pathological aggressivity, which some people found to be a very aggressive man. Um, you can talk about pride, prideful. Generally speaking, in human beings, these are all bound up, these qualities. Mm-hmm. And they do uh, result in that p- proverbial, to
0: paraphrase Timothy Finley, that someone who does things. And so it took guts to do that. How would you say that he displayed these guts in his life as a writer? He wrote fearlessly
1: about all kinds of things. He wrote to engender conversation. He wrote to engender arguments. He went looking for fights. He didn't take on the fights that came to him. He went looking for them. He believed in the value of judgment, and he believed that, some people are put on their earth to ask the questions other people refuse to ask the hard ones, the uncomfortable ones, so from a very early age, and he was drawing in part from a tradition inside Judaism of asking those questions the moral man it was an important concept for Richard, the moral man, and he he decided he was that man, he had that inner steel, he had that fortitude to be that kind of man, so that in, se- in a sense, obliged endless displays of, once again, of, of, of daring, of courage to write that article that's going to infuriate people, mm-hmm. to write that piece that the next time you go into a, certain rooms with certain people, they're going to give you, you know, they're going to give you a look. One example, Nigel, of that from later in his life is uh, he wrote this d- really devastating portrait of Brian Mulroney upon Mulroney's uh, decision to step down as prime minister. And then he went and it was full of really raw attacks upon the quality of character, not just of Mulroney, but of his cabinet. And then he went to the Conservative Convention, where they were choosing Mulroney's successor, and he sat there with people around him who had to be firing, and actually I had some eyewitness accounts, people who just wanted to, to, to lynch him, to strangle him, but he just sat there.
0: You know, it's funny when you say that, I think of... Of Trudeau sitting there while Molotov cocktails kind of were launched in his right. direction. Exactly, at
1: the Jean Baptiste Day and saying, I'm not getting up. Yeah, or the stories of, about Richler, which are, and Richler and Trudeau had quite a lot in common and did, and did evolve this late life friendship a bit fittingly because they were two of the sort of biggest personalities in Canadian history. Uh, but Richler, there are legendary stories, particularly again around Quebec, which was really his heart's core. And, and there, there was one. If there was one ground he was never going to give, it was the ground of him being a, a full citizen of the, of the city of Montreal and the province of Quebec, and no matter what anybody else had to say about whether or not he qualified by virtue of either his first language or his identity, racial identity, or his views, and the story that is often told, but it's a good one. You know, he's sitting in a bar, he's sitting in the Ritz-Carlton bar, and uh, Bernard Landry, a, a a politician he held in particularly low regard and 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 with whom he exchanged already some verbal insults is across the room with a bunch of his friends and, and Jack Obrinovich comes into the, the bar and he and Richler are supposed to go off to have dinner. And Richler says, you know, I'm not leaving until he does. <laughs> and Jack... Because he'd made he, some racial slurs. He, uh, had, uh, he had. He, had, he yeah. had, that's right. Even by PQ standards, Richler held him in, in low, low regard. Uh, so... Jack Rabinovich, who's not a drinker. Had to sit there for three hours while Laundry and Richler drank in their respective corners and exchanged glances. Then finally, Laundry left, him. and that at that moment, Rabinovich and Richler could go have dinner. Point being, I mean, that's on one level, that's a, it's, it's like boys will be boys, right? Mm-hmm. But it was it's towards the larger point of that character we're talking about that never quit character, or, or as his friend Bill Weintraub would say, he was one tough hombre.
0: Well, he also went after the crown. His goal was to write the best damn novel that has ever been written.
1: Yes. I think that was very much part of the ethos of the, maybe the final generation of novelists who could begin and, can, and carry out, out their careers safely assuming that the novel was the great artistic form, the dominant form, which I would argue it was right up until about the 1960s, uh, until film surpassed and then few more things since but there once upon a time every literate person in North America had to be versant with a core group of novels and serious novels I'm not talking about popular novels I'm talking about you had to read a Saul Bellow at some point if you want to be taken seriously therefore uh, the notion that a, a writer's job was to write one book that would last was wasn't boastful it wasn't uh, delusional it was simply what your job was what the goal was Mm-hmm. And Richler held that, held to that view. He held to that view his entire life. He also argued that the reason he, he got up every morning was because you know he hadn't done it yet. You can make a case for that being another kind of courage, by the way, to keep going back at it, back at it.
0: it there's also this sense of dissatisfaction that drives you. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's a, a search for excellence.
1: Yes. His uh, com- methods of composition were, to, I, I learned in the course of writing the book, were surprisingly um, uh, fraught. He got out of the gates very quickly. Four novels before he's twenty-eight, and then and then he just he really ran into troubles. and And I argue in the in the biography that he what he was trying to do is to find the real the sort of the form for the book that was going to be his book, and he found it interesting by reading uh, I think Bellow, and realizing that like Bellow, like that generation of uh, Jewish diasporic writers, it was it was correct it was right to make your own life the vehicle to explore. The shifting into the mainstream of of Jewish culture in North America, to explore the changing notions of masculinity, to explore all kinds of things. In other words, you didn't have to pretend you weren't who you were, and you didn't have to. You certainly didn't have to write about the shuttle back in Russia. You didn't have to write historical novels. You could be the subject, and that, to some extent, the you being simply a Jewish uh, male of your generation. Once Richler figured that out, he could. He had the kind of template for the for the big books. But even so, they were spaced by eight, ten years. And that was because he was, as you say, he was dissatisfied, he was restless, he didn't want to repeat himself. And I even argued that, though he was sometimes accused of writing the same novel over and over, quite the opposite was the case. Each novel is protein. Each novel he had to kind of create from the ground, maybe, except maybe Joshua then and now. Joshua then and now, which he wrote because he'd failed to to get Solomon Gersky off the ground. That maybe was a, a holding pattern novel. But otherwise, those big books are all sui generis. They're all, actually, he, Richard almost had to rethink the form each time.
0: But the backdrop or the the main character is Montreal. I think
1: so. I very deliberately made Montreal almost a character in my biography, in the way that any biography of Dickens would have to have London as a character or Joyce Dublin. I felt that that was, in a sense, true the spirit of Richard's work. And you know, my my book begins with almost. Almost a sensory portrait of Montreal.
0: Mm-hmm. Very much a teeming life that uh, you capture. Yes. Very, very well.
1: And I do so stealthily simply by lifting all the stuff from his essays. <laughs> right. It wasn't like I thought that up or I, or I pieced it together from archival material. I did a little bit of that and I talked to people, but probably 80% of those details that give you that portrait of that city are drawn from his work. Point being that they mattered that much. And they were fundamental to him. They were his building blocks. I wanted them to to be yours, mine yeah. for the book. So Montreal was a character in his work and Montreal was uh, a, a fundamental to him as a man, I think.
0: Well, just back to the laundry mm-hmm. incident. It was his city as much as anyone else's and you're not going to budge him.
1: That's right. Uh, j- as recently as two weeks ago, I delivered a lecture at McGill on... Um, Richler in Montreal, because I feel there's so much ground that needs to be made up. There's so much uh, about what people think of him as in Montreal, particularly French Montrealers, that is frankly wrong and and needs to be addressed. But it it all starts from a, a a point that you have to accept, which is that exactly what you said. That what Richler was saying is, you know, this is this is simply my town too. Mm-hmm. This is my backyard. I am a citizen as much as you are, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not backing down. And every time you suggest that I'm somehow not part of the family, I'm not really, you know, one of us. You just make me matter because, first of all, that rings all sorts of ugly bells. There are less dissonant bells from history, if you're Jewish. And secondly, it just ain't so. And my point with this McGill lecture, among a few points, was that he was a loyal citizen of Montreal. So for the city not to get that not only was he one of the, maybe the two greatest writers for that city, but he was a loyal citizen. No other city in Canada mattered to him. I compared his his, his Canada view to the famous New Yorker cover where Manhattan is two-thirds of the landmass of the United States and the rest is sort of indifferently. Because sort of the west of Montreal... It's all sort of fuzzy for Richler. And Eastern Montreal it was kind of fuzzy too, you know.
0: It seems to me that, that you know, we talk about Richler and, and Irving Leighton as well. Mm-hmm. The, the very fact that there is this uh, tension in the place mm-hmm. must contribute somehow to the creation of, of important work.
1: Yes. Most artists are grateful for unhappy childhoods and, and difficult yes. adult situations, uh, yeah anger or passion anger or passion that arises from simultaneously from internal complaints and wounds and, and external injustices. It is probably difficult to write great books if you both experienced a, you know, a magical childhood and are now enjoying a blissfully peaceful adulthood. you may not in the end have a great deal to remark upon or if you have a great you may have things to remark upon, but you won't feel the, the, the urgency uh, and you're right, Montreal is a city that should compel. Great art and and has because there are divisions on the ground there, essential, unyielding, unchanging divisions, I would argue it's comparable to Belfast or Jerusalem or any of those great cities where where simply people with very differing priorities and allegiances are attempting to share the same ground, and Richer I suspect was fueled by that he liked it, he likes not the wrong. One. I do report in the book when he. He's living in London, he's got five kids, and Florence, his wife, is very happy there. He's 40, he's successful. He's made this very impressive career, in a in, in literary career in London. And he agrees somewhat reluctantly to fly back to cover the October crisis for Life magazine. He shows up halfway through it, but you know that he had such authority that they, they were willing to fly a Canadian living in London all the way back to Montreal to cover it, rather than just get someone in Montreal or even get someone from New York. They wanted Mordecai Richler. And he came back and he reported it. And the last thing he wrote in that piece was essentially he was saying, "Well, my hometown's getting interesting." And then within three years he had repatriated. He hadn't repatriated, you know, to cover the mess, but he was interested. It it appealed to him that energy and that tumult. And another thing that I, I regret is that French Quebecers assume he was just a wrecking ball. But what he wasn't, he was actually a citizen who was feeling deeply and fully the complexity of
0: his society what about the impact that i mean this this man has he must be coming out of your pores how has it affected how you write and how you think about place i don't think working
1: on Richard for those years and now i mean I, essentially i wrote the book for four years and i've been talking about it for another couple almost now yeah. We're coming up to two years this october it will be since the book came out I don't think he's affected my writing because I don't think writers found, who discovered their voice and are in, our, like, in career like I am necessarily have that or are, are, are blown away that way. But sure, I couldn't help but reflecting on my own career, my own patterns of thought and behavior when I'm, in a sense, keeping company with that guy. We, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, this this great doer, this fearless, sometimes uh, intemperate, sometimes rude, but always honest and and bracing.
0: But it's interesting we use the word doer. Basically, the way he did was to write. That's how he did.
1: Yes, yes. But he didn't write the way most people write. I'd say along with Margaret Atwood, he's, he was the most socially engaged writer Canada has produced. Lots of writers consider a, a day's work well done to simply produce their 800 words of their novel and then they go off and do other things. Richard was never not a journalist, and was never not wishing to contribute to the conversation about his society. Matter of fact, in this same lecture, my argument about his status in Montreal is that, in a sense, citizen Richler has overwhelmed literary Richler. That Montrealers remember him too much for what they think he said about the city, but what they think he said about them, and they don't read the novels, which are always the better angels of writers. But because Richler was so active. And so busy and so prolific, you know, and it's easy to forget he had a weekly column for years and years, you know, in, the, in national papers. So everybody was reading him, and he was talking and talking as a journalist, as a citizen, as an artist, all three. Whereas, whereas a great thing about a novel is, in a sense, you, you're just the artist during that period. So yes, it's
0: true he was just writing, but he was using the pen as a sword. There's no question. And affecting Change. I think that's the, he, he was he was doing or acting in a way that caused action.
1: Yes, he was. There's, I record in the book a remarkable exchange on Radio Canada, French CBC, where uh, uh, a journalist named Jean-Francois Lise, who continues to be a very ardent nationalist and outspoken, uh, had just done a really ho- hostile interview with Richler on the newly formed News World State Network. And Lise then goes on a French uh, radio show and says you know, Richler is wreaking havoc on the nationalist movement. And by the way, he was. Uh, he had once said, nothing embarrasses the nationalists more than being humiliated abroad, and I plan mm. to oblige them. In the New
0: Yorker. And, well,
1: this is a man who could pick up a phone and get the BBC to... Do a documentary. He could pick up the phone and get his old friend Morley Safer to come up and do a show on Quebec sign loss for sixty minutes. Who mm-hmm. p- commission and publish a piece in in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic, in the daily, in the Times in London. Never mind in Saturday Night or Globe and Mail. So he could do. He could pick up the phone and he could, in fact,
0: do stuff. Do yeah. stuff. And yeah. he
1: said he would, and he did. So there's this exchange where Lise is asked by this young woman in a rather interesting way. She said, "Do we?" need a strategy to stop Mordecai Richler. And Lise says, yes, we need a strategy to stop Mordecai Richler. With the we being that always problematic, I think, in Quebec, who's we? She's on Radio Canada, officially a branch of the CBC, but that's the way it goes there. People take liberties with with who's in and who's out. So imagine that. Can you think of another writer outside of Solzhenitsyn in Russia or something like that? Somebody... Pretending or believing they're speaking on behalf of a lo- an actual social movement, saying, "Do we need a strategy to stop this one rumpled sixty-something-year-old guy? You know, not in very good shape, smoking cigars. That's extraordinary. The fact mm-hmm. that Richler, in other parts of the world, that he would have been thrown in prison. You know, he would have been silenced. And here in Canada, strangely enough, his outspokenness wound up causing some people to admire him less. And I don't, I can't figure that out. What? Who? Well, a lot of Canadians uh, that I spoke with." said to me, you know, I, I he made me so angry I stopped reading his books. That you know, not that, not that he suffered. I mean, Barney's version sold quarter of a million copies in Canada, which is a significant number of copies. But there's no question that he, he was willing to, or he just simply wasn't going to let it stop him, he was willing to risk compromising his reputation as a novelist by being so outspoken as a citizen journalist. And for me, that's, that's a big thing, and that's a significant quality, and I admire it greatly. Uh, and as I say... Uh, most writers aren't built that way. And Michael andachi's great writers just simply not built that way. But he and along with Atwood, you know, they they were and they are built that way. Margaret Atwood, by the way, um, not in the book, but in a documentary that I co wrote called Mordecai Ritchie, Canada's first shock jock, which I thought was very witty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How has it affected you? Then are you becoming more socially uh, active as a result of having having spent time with him? No, and I don't think so. I mean, my social
1: activism, which is you know, I'm the president of Penn Canada right now. and um, But I've been a member of Penn for 20 years. I was on the board 12 years ago, long before I thought about, write about Mordecai Richler, and I've written books on Northern Ireland and China, and I've lived in China and and in Northern Ireland or in Ireland. Uh, so to the extent that I have any activist or political dimensions to my work and character, they're unrelated to Richler. And I actually don't share his desire to comment on daily affairs. I'm quite happy to stay mum on the latest you know, gauche comment by a politician or outrage or whatever, like anything like that. Where I have an instinct for political engagement is in, on larger s- structural, almost, politics. So I'm very interested in writing about Chinese society, I'm very interested in, in thinking about and commenting once in a while on human rights around the world and free expression around the world. But less so. Richler actually wanted to mix it up. I'm not a, a pugilist the way he was a pugilist. And if you're not born with your fists swinging, I don't think you ever really develop an a, appetite for that.
0: So have you changed as a result
1: then, at all? I don't think so. I don't think so. Certainly not the, the awards, which are neither here nor there, to be mm-hmm. frank with you. It behooves a writer who's in the middle of a career to be equally unimpressed by being nominated for awards as by not being nominated for by awards. And You and I have both sat on juries, so we know how capricious and random <laughs> it is, and... It doesn't really mean very much. It's nice to win, though, but it, it has no effect on me, and aside from making me having to get my suit pressed often.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about then, You know, just in terms of learning from a life, has something come out of his life that... Uh, I'm asking the same question again, I think, okay. but has knowing this individual in a way that you've known him... Well, has it made you think differently about Canada? Has it made you want to do something that you hadn't
1: Once wanted
0: to do before? A few things about Canada, maybe a little
1: melancholy, because it became very clear to me in the course of writing the book that the era of cultural nationalism, which birthed so many of our writers and nurtured them from Monroe to Atwood, Richler and Davies preceded a little, but certainly enjoyed it. Finley, definitely, is gone. It's long gone. The notion that Canadian culture was a project that you had to participate in, and you had to you had to identify it as such. You had to say, you know, we need to do the following to be to be a nation, culturally speaking, mm. because it, we had existed for eighty years, floating in a, in a in a kind of tepid post-colonial sea of of nothingness, culturally.
0: Well, in the yeah. fact that uh, you you quote Richler. Quoting Samuel Johnson and, and, and others about what a backwater culturally the country uh, country was, was when he
1: started. yeah. And
0: so I, I,
1: I reflected a lot on how, because I, I learned how, how forceful that project was during, say, the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And it's now so apparent that it's done. It's now so apparent that whatever uh, will that went into it has been dissipated. And people are back to being vaguely hum- embarrassed if you discuss Canadian projects.
0: The fact, for example, that the National Library hasn't held an exhibit Mm -hmm. for something like two years now.
1: Well, there you go. There's but one example among many, no doubt. So there's that one thing I I reflect upon. The uh, the other thing about his life that has caused me to reflect.
0: But sorry, you reflect on it and it makes you melancholy, but it doesn't spur you to do anything about it like he did.
1: Well, there are so many forces at play now that are, well, they weren't at play in his lifetime. Uh, Canadian culture is being subject to digitalization, like every other culture. That's profoundly destabilizing of everything inside the publishing industry, and uh, you know, CBC is being undermined and 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 rendered impoverished, or given mandates that are unattainable and perhaps even ill-advised that push it away from cultural programming. The notion that the CBC is actually helping its case by. Re- Reproducing bad versions of already abysmal reality TV shows it sits you down in astonishment, but the, but that's where they're at. By the time they're done, they will have, their head will have been unsuccessfully unscrewed by misdirection almost, and they'll be, they'll be gone. So all those agencies uh, that were supporting uh, culture are are being pushed around, beaten up, shrunken, diminished. Sure, I can sign a petition, I can write an op-ed, I can speak my mind, but I do honestly feel like that cultures rise and fall based upon almost the, uh, the degree of passion key people bring to it. In other words, it has to be conscious.
0: It's almost like a great man or woman theory of history. Is that what you're suggesting? We need a leader who is committed to yes, culture. Yes, uh, yes,
1: uh, not for nothing. Uh, Michael Ignatius' brief career in politics was not successful, but... As a prime minister, he would have been our most literate and literary and culturally sensitive prime minister probably in a very, very long while. And look how he did. That's <laughs> melancholy. That's melancholy, yes. The other quality, though, is that Richler lived fully and very successfully a literary life that I feel is likewise vanished now. Not even diminished, it's actually vanished. He could avail himself of opportunities to write for journalism, newspaper, magazine, that were in abundance. Abundance because magazines were still considered an excellent marketing tour. So And uh, and they had money. And they had tons of money. That's what I mean yeah. because you and I both remember probably weekend inserts, weekend magazines and the Telegram and the Star which would be a hundred pages because forty years ago furniture stores and shoe companies they wanted to they want they knew you they wanted you to read their ads. That's all gone. It's all gone elsewhere those newspapers and magazines are either gone or diminished Richard was actually being paying literally he was being paid literally more 40 years ago for pieces and people are being paid now not judge yeah, you know, based <laughs> on the inflation no, or, no literally more and he was being paid for his books literally more than what a writer of a comparable stature is being offered now so he could live this life and
0: it was full the, the, sorry but it's a, it's a shift to movies and he did some screenwriting and television, right? Where where the talent that wants money goes yes. these days.
1: Although, ironically enough, there there's been such a commoner parallel to these other changes has been the increasing specialization of writing. So, Richler back in the day could dabble in movie scripts and TV scripts, would be offered them without really any you know qualifications because he was a good writer and he wanted good writing. And, and if you look right up into the 70s and 80s, there were one-hour drama series on the CBC where they would commission Alice Munro and Margaret Atwood to go out and write a one-hour drama. Could you imagine such a thing now? Everything is specialized. You have the TV writer, who doesn't do anything but write for TV, and certainly doesn't want anybody else to get in there. You have the film writer, and then you and then you have the novelist, and, and they're all it's all separate. So in terms of building a career, you get the odd exception. You know, older ones like William Boyd, who continues to move very successfully, but... Very rare, and coupled with the sort of shrinking of markets, it's made the literary world smaller and tighter and more impoverished, and simply not anything related to abundance. And richer. So I feel like he was he one of the last of the you know the, the Johnsonian to use Doctor Johnson Grub Street guys proudly and successfully. So
0: that's pretty sad.
1: Things change, I guess. Yeah. This is a side a sidebar from my biography, Richter. But I've come, <laughs> like many people, to realize that the digital revolution is the real thing. It is it is a shift. We are in a post-literate world as a result of it, and that obliges new forms. I guess that's separate from the cultural uh, diminishment that's gone on in Canada in the last decade or fifteen years. But it's it's not unrelated if you're a, a writer trying to earn a living and trying to feed a family which he did you know he was a very proud man and he was very proud of the fact that he earned very very good incomes off his work
0: and this is what he promised his future wife too yes
1: she thought he was kidding she thought he was just being boastful when she said you know I'll, i'll promise to look after you and i'll show you the world even i think he said something along those lines when he was young he was trying to woo a very beautiful woman that he was obsessed with
0: which also takes courage Big
1: time. I can't imagine an area, uh, Nigel, where he didn't, you know, he, Richler would have lacked that kind of cojones, you know. He was he was a big-time guy. Even if you didn't care for him, he had, I think most people have granted that. You know, he, he was outsized, he big appetites, he had big uh, ambitions, big talent, and he was unapologetic, and he was comfortable with his own contradictions, which is great. All that stuff's great for a biographer. That's a great subject. So I really felt lucky to have such a, a richly complex su- subject, so much so that I didn't feel any need, in addition to having no inclination, to judge him. My book is tries to show you his character. I really hope I don't ever judge him. First of all, I'm not qualified, and secondly, you can make your own
0: judgments. Finally, what do you think he would do if he was alive today then? If he had it all to do over again? Right.
1: Well, first of all, she's, he should still be alive. He'd only be eighty-one. It's interesting. Forget he died seventy. Died too young. Lived a bit hard. But he actually comes from a very long living family. His aunts and uncles still alive. Were he to start out now, a, a, a younger writer, there are younger writers of his appetites, of his of his drive, of course. And I meet them, and I you sense, and I and I get from them too how much he's a model for that kind of uh, joyful energy and exuberance and uh, ambition they struggle i mean and it is much harder i can tell you it's much harder to in a sense grow your talent
0: now because doors are just shut on you because the media doesn't have the money that it used yeah. to yeah that's the big sure. not
1: that's the big one i mean in addition to specialization so
0: nobody's calling you up from the cbc saying hey
1: you know i really think it would be great if stephen marsh or some other young writer why don't you write a script for me that's just never going to happen again apparently you're, instead you're going to be obliged to suffer through products like Little Mosque on the Prairie you know things that f- feel to me to be dead frankly but, but they they abide some inner logic of what TV is now
0: it seems to me then that we're in a we're in a bit of a trough. I think, you know, this creativity and activity, mm-hmm. there are certain conditions that are good for it and not so good for it. And if we are in a trough that at some point there's going to be a demand that will well up to, to fill that void, one would hope.
1: Normally, I would say, of course, there are always high points and low points. There are always fluctuations. But we also have undergone this digital revolution. We are watching our world go inside the computer screen and cease to have nearly as much physical property to it, if you will, whether it be a book, whether it be a a movie house, whether it be a theater. All those forms, as you know, are at risk. Um, Not theater, not movies, not books, but the old-fashioned way of making them. And those were industries, and they were industries that employed people and fulfilled people. And in their place... I don't know, so so yes, I would I would accept your point, and I would be uh, I suppose a little less uh, melancholy about this. Where I not also, and if you will, combining the apparent trough we're in, particularly in the climate we're in politically now, with the, with these this huge paradigm shift. So I don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, I'm not unaware that Canada is still a highly prosperous country, and we we are a nation of readers, and we sell lots of books get sold. And I'm well well aware of how much more dire things are for. Artists elsewhere, but I also, in the course of writing this book, because I wrote this book, I'm aware that we had an energy and a focus and a project that we let slip away, or did slip away, anyways. And that's and that's a shame because it it's probably for for a country like ours, proximate to America, swimming in global global cultural waters. Happily, we need to be that on point, if you will. We need to really think about it, and which does sort of go back to your idea of a great leader, which we emphatically do not have now.
0: Well, thanks for bringing Richler back to life and conveying in such a rich way what, what an impressive human being he was. Absolutely. It was great to read the book. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed talking to you again. I'll be speaking with uh, Charlie Foran, who, what is the latest project?
1: Finishing a novel now. I stopped writing fiction reluctantly and unhappily for the five years it took to write that book and, uh, and the shorter book on Modest Shire. So I'm back writing fiction. It was wonderful because there's a lot less clutter on my desk.
0: Great. Well, thanks again. We'll look forward to that.